Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all of the people at the table. I kind of feel like a young person explaining why their homework is not done. You can hear it in my voice. Um, allergies are terrible. Um, I was on vacation. I lost files. It was a confluence of of wonderful things that led to this brief pause in our release schedule. But to make up for it today, we're going to be talking to James J. Hake about building upon the foundations of pre-existing worlds and some ways to approach it. And he dips into both talking about it from the DM perspective, as well as his role at Ghostfire Gaming, as well as basically the reading rainbow adage of take a look in a book you'll probably find his name uh, because he's worked on other settings as well for D&D. So we're going to talk about building upon those foundations. Damn, Chris will be there as well. But enough of me vamping and talking. Let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat back on the menu, boys. All right. Well, we are here today for another edition of The Meet, where we are going to talk about world buildings, specifically what we've entitled Upon the Foundation. So talking about world building in existing settings. So to do that, uh, we have asked uh, James J. Hake to come on our episode today to talk through uh, how to world build in already existing foundations. And so James has done a whole bunch of work around the, uh, the RPG community, but currently is the game designer and head of fables at Ghost Fire Gaming. So James, we're stoked to have you on. How, how are you? How are you doing? It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. I'm doing, I'm doing well. You know, it's the middle of a very busy time for me in terms of RPG work, lots of projects in progress, some announced, many not, and those which I can talk about as it pertains to our discussion today, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to, to dive right into it with you all. For sure. And that's exactly our next question is, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on lately? And we always add the caveat that you can talk about. <laughs> well, uh, the biggest project that was just announced for me is Critical Role's Tal'Dorei campaign setting reborn. And I think that's actually very germane to our topic today. And so I will I will dive right into that as soon as we have the chance. Uh, you also mentioned that my new gig, my new job, uh, yes. I'm over at Ghostfire Gaming, a very cool Australian 5e uh, outfit. I've got illustrious folks like Sean Merwin uh, working, working by my side over there. And uh, while Sean is working on big announced projects like his recently million dollar plus Kickstarter for the Grim Hollow Monster Grimoire. I am over in a different corner of the place working on a secretive, very clandestine operation called Fables. And the announcement for Fables is some, some yet to be determined uh amount of time away from now. And so thus my my hat of secrecy is firmly mounted upon my brow. But I have to say when when fables becomes a reality, I think that I think that everyone will be quite interested in it. The fans of Ghostfire Gaming's previous outings, of course, and uh and people who've just been looking for more 
adventure content from me. There will be there will be much to much to get excited about about fables. But today we're talking about uh, working in other people's sandboxes, which is always a fun fun. Before we get there, we always with our guests always ask a surprise question just to spice <laughs> things up a little bit, keep us on our toes. So, Neil, I believe you have a surprise question for James. Do you mind enlightening us to what he'll be uh, answering today? It's really just going to be something I made up because I didn't have one prepared. But knowing all the time that you've spent with Critical Role, the idea that I had was who out of the first season, second season, whatever you want, which character would you choose as your drinking buddy and why? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Matt Mercer, next question. Um, oh man, best drinking buddy out of all all the campaigns. Wow, that's um, a hard one. Yeah, because all, it can go a lot of, of different directions. All of Vox directions. Machina can pack it away. Uh, any scene where all of Vox Machina is drinking together—that's that's that's huge fun. And we can think of Grog, who can drink an elephant under the table. We can think of Percy, who's very genteel in his in his imbibements. <laughs> I think I think Keyleth would be the most fun to go drink. Okay. Okay. She's a party. Like she she seems so so demure and and so chill. But if if you if you see, I, I don't remember what episode it is, but they've just uh they've just finished a grand adventure. They're back in Whitestone and they're they're partying afterwards. Wow, Keyleth's wild side would be fun to be around. Is it the Briarwood arc where they do that? No, no, it's it's after that. There is a big party after the Briarwood arc. Right, right. Favorite yeah. arc of Critical Role. Oh, so uh, good. Out of both campaigns, no contest. Yeah, it's really good. It, it might be right after Chroma Conclave. It might be in that big sort of one-year time gap that they I do. I think you're right. That. Yep, I think you're right. <laughs> yep. I guess the question I'd be curious about to play off of that, who is the person that you would avoid drinking with at all costs? Ooh. That's That's an interesting question, too. <laughs> Oh, Matt Mercer. Matt Mercer. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, right off the top of my head, I think I think Vax would be a kind kind of a downer to drink with. Caleb too. I love Liam, but I wouldn't want to drink with any of his characters. Um, Yeah, yeah. You know, if I'm if I'm going out, I'd want to I want to have some some real cheerful, good good vibes, good energy. I was gonna say you're either you're either dealing with the Raven Queen stuff or you're dealing with like existential crisis of yes. oh life is so awful I killed my parents. Caleb's or, or, or Liam's characters are so fun they're so dramatic and so juicy, um, but I would not want to know them IRL. No, <laughs> not at all. I feel like Scanlan would be hard too because you just never know what's gonna happen. Like there's, there's, a, there's a fun side to Scanlan. There's also like a. <laughs> I'm not sure what's happening right now, and I don't making, know if I want to be a part of it. a little, a little uncomfy over there, Scanlan. For sure, for sure, for sure. I feel like I'd have well, to keep him in check, and that's just a that's just a recipe for disaster. We'll let Grog do that. That'll be fine. Yeah. Leave it to Grog. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we're we're excited because uh, you've done a lot of stuff with a bunch of different worlds, and one of the th- biggest questions that we always get. And just ones that we struggle with, and I'm sure every dungeon master who runs a already pre-built world is one, there's a lot of information to take in about these things. And so to in every element there or in every game, there's an element of role playing is making stuff up on the scene or on the spot, right? But I'm curious from the work that you've done over some of these settings, and we can just talk about maybe best practices for how do we 
appropriately bring in already pre-produced content? And when is it okay to go off the rails and just make up crap on the spot and have fun with it? Um, yeah. So let's just, let's just start in and start talking about it and see where it takes us. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to preface everything I say here with this. Um, I, I am approaching this conversation today from kind of both sides of the, of the curtain. I've been a DM who has adapted published material to my own settings. One of my favorite campaigns of all time, one of my, my one of my first big 5e campaigns, I should say, uh, was me running Princes of the Apocalypse, uh, which I love the idea of. And I ran very straight in some portions and deviated wildly uh, in others. But, uh, but uh, I'm also coming from the perspective of someone who has worked in these worlds, from someone who has been hired by a company be it Wizards of the Coast or Critical Role Productions or so on and so forth, to take their canon and work within its boundaries to create something that they feel comfortable publishing and adding to the grand and storied history of their setting. I, I will try to make it clear which perspective I'm talking about uh, when when we get to it, but it may get a little bit jumbled, so use your best discretion when, when picking out my advice here. And I'll, I'll just jump in and, and say it. If you're coming from a DM's perspective, it's always okay to go off the rail. The the, the DM, as long as uh, this intention is communicated well to their players, I, I should qualify, is always empowered to create your own canon at the table. I think Wizards of the Coast recently came out with the, the blog talking about canon in their settings. And uh, they, they took a very lackadaisical approach to it insofar as they said that uh, for our, for their purposes, for their publishing purposes, only what has been published in fifth edition is true in fifth edition. Um, and I think this is very similar to how say Star Wars is doing its canon right now. They've relegated all their old stuff to a sort of past continuity, but they will also go back and draw from it liberally to bring into the new continuity like Grand Admiral Thrawn, one of people's favorite Star Wars villains of all time. Uh, was relegated to Legends canon, but obviously they had to grab him. People love Thrawn too much to not do stuff with him, so they pulled him For right sure. back in. Yeah. And this, this is totally my personal opinion, but I think that canon is a dangerous thing. I think canon can become a straitjacket to fun and to good storytelling. There's a tightrope to be walked for every everyone who tells the story especially in D&D, where the lines between storytelling and like simulation of an actual world really come right up against each other. When you are playing a D&D game, whether you're a player or a dungeon master, you have to ask yourself, am I here to tell a good story or am I here to create a relatively accurate simulation of like a, a history? And, and the, the answer can be somewhere in the middle. I think, I think the best games lie somewhere in the middle where, where stories develop from what happens in actual play, but the, the GM and the players themselves kind of act as directors and chroniclers to, uh, to exaggerate their own stories into the heroic and the, and the sensical as they happen. Right, because actual history is nonsense. Actual history is just a, <laughs> a new random series of events that we can only make sense of in hindsight. And, and good stories are not random and nonsensical. Good stories have a, have a through line. And uh, we, we kind of need to balance 
uh, how those go if we want to have a fun storytelling time. Yeah, I've often thought of, you know, canon stuff as good fodder for creativity. Hmm. Right? So like you can read through an entire 250 page, you know, pick whatever setting you want, right? You talked about Prince of the Apocalypse, Prince of the Apocalypse, you know, pick that setting and you can go through it and there's all sorts of NPCs that are created. There's all sorts of events laid out to have happen and they can spark your creativity, but that doesn't always mean that like it's going to be point A to point B to point C to point D. And if you skip over things, it might be things that you can bring back later or can inspire different sorts of events to have happen in the future. Mm. But to get all of the minutia down of like, this is what the inside of that bar looks like. This is the way that that, you know, NPC would mm. would speak. This is the all of the events that, you know, led up to it. And, you know, you railroad people in a specific way. It's like, no, I think it's I, I think a lot of the canon material is best used as fodder for creativity for DMs just to be like, hey, the world is your oyster. Go have fun with it. And here's some here's some help along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, I think one of the biggest words, Chris, you just used it, which, hey, great job. It was like we do this all the time um, is, is claiming that things are your because like when you look at that article that came out, there is a very large distinction I see between the Forgotten Realms or the Taldorai campaign setting and your Forgotten Realms. Because the second you added any of your characters or even your own ideas, it's yours. It stopped being the, because like everything you do has these ripples that will go throughout, especially when you do these world changing events, because you did Princes of the Apocalypse happen or did like Tiamat rise or did like all these things happen. So there's the Forgotten Realms and your Forgotten Realms. Absolutely. I, I always come back to Star Wars because it's such a sprawling universe and it's so easily understood because of its big tentpole movies. But uh, if I were to play a Star Wars RPG, I, I would be hard pressed to include practically any canon at all in those stories, other than the sort of iconic elements that make the setting its own. This is in, in particular because I think Star Wars is not a particularly well-suited setting for role-playing games. It's a huge place, but Star Wars has a story that is pivotal to it. Uh, it's and it's a story about the Skywalker family and the Death Star being destroyed and stuff like that. And as soon as you start playing characters in that setting, you are intentionally casting yourself as background characters. And I don't think that's a very fun sort of way to play uh, to play role-playing games. Like you want to be the hero of the story no matter what's going on. Yeah, it's hard to divorce yourself from that overall grand narrative in the Star Wars realm. That's for sure. Absolutely. Fortunately, most role-playing game settings are uh, not that centralized when it comes to stories. The Forgotten Realms has no Death Star. Uh, the Forgotten Realms has has a truly overwhelming number of gigantic threats <laughs> that are threatening to stomp the world at any given time. Tiamat. Elemental evil, giants, uh, demon lords, archdevils. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonder this world isn't, hasn't cracked open like an egg. Yeah. What am I going to find around this next corner? <laughs> yeah. And, and like, honestly, for a role-playing game, that's awesome. It, it dodges what I think is the sort of World of Warcraft problem of, oh, so you're all the main character? Oh, so you're all going to fight the the world crushing event this time? No, I think it's safe to imagine that if you subscribe to the idea that all of these things are happening at once, uh, there's a bunch of different people going around being being the big damn heroes, saving the world in their own small way. 
all across the world all at once. And, and that makes for a world that is chock full of huge adventure. Well, I think it's the I think it's what Lord of the Rings does really well with you know the the Fellowship of the Ring originally and then splitting off into a whole bunch of different things. Like mm. each of their own have their world changing massive things that they're fighting against, right? Gandalf and the Balrog, you know, Merry and Pippin and Isengard and Frodo and Sam going down to more. Like there's so many different elements in that that it's like. Yeah, if any one of those things failed, the story would be vastly different. And mm -hmm. but everybody plays a different role, has a different level of uh, threat up against them. And I think that's something that that critical role managed really well. Uh, and and it's a testament to how how well Matt understands his role playing games. Is that the story of Vox Machina? I would say especially. Uh, well, you know, I, I shouldn't discount the Mighty Nine either, but both of their stories in the way that it has these almost comic book-like story arcs, all of the threats feel pressing and important to the heroes, but they never feel like the one story that setting is capable of telling. Mm -hmm. It always feels like there, there's a bunch of different wheels spinning within the grand cog of Exandria, and that even if Vox Machina or the Mighty Nine weren't there, some something else would rise to fill the gap that that story would leave, and the story would be different. Uh, of course, the heroes of that story might not might not succeed, or they might succeed in a different way, or they might fail in an interesting way and cause the world to spin off its own rails. Um, but it never feels like because you're not playing a Skywalker, the Death Star would, you know, still be there or something like that. I think the, the, the Chroma Conclave in Critical Role, when a bunch of ancient dragons come to bring ruin to the world, that's when it feels most sort of classically heroic storytelling e but even then the size of the the heroic party the sheer number of npcs that are involved in box machina's victory there really feels like a, a sort of uniting of as many adventurers as possible as many you know these npcs if they weren't matt's characters he was playing there could very easily be player characters like people like allura and drake thunderbrand are in Matt's stories, they're retired adventurers. And I think that if you were to play as them, if you were to come from it from the assumption that Allura and Drake aren't Matt's NPCs, they're another adventuring party, it would feel, you could very easily play a campaign from their perspective and feel like they are the real heroes of this story and Vox Machina are on their way to you know, have that adventure and then they'll, they'll go their separate ways and you can then keep on following Allura and company and see what they're doing afterward. That's why in the Tal'Dorei campaign setting Reborn, we gave people stat blocks for Vox Machina um, because 20 years later, after their adventures have ended, you know, not all of them had been uh, adventuring full <laughs> on for uh, for those 20 years. Many of them have lost their edge a little bit, but they're all, they're all ready to uh, pick up the slack as best they can if the need arises and be allies to the heroes. My, my hope is that if, if people use Vox Machina in their campaigns as good guys, then they won't be used as sort of spotlight hogs or sort of lore characters who dominate the landscape, but kind of in the way that Matt used Allura in campaign two as cameo appearances that uh, kind of wink at the audience and give 
the player. It's something to go, oh, holy crap, I remember mm -hmm. them. It's mm -hmm. so cool to see what they've gotten up to so many years later. Yeah. When you said not all of <laughs> when you said not all of Vox Machina has kept kept up their their edge, I just imagine all of them like uh video game Thor from <laughs> that's just what I imagine all of them look like. Just chilling with their homies playing video games. And they deserve it. <laughs> uh Scanlon with just this massive pot belly and beard. This is the great visual image for me. <laughs> a transition from Grog to Korg is pretty easy too. Yeah. He's wearing the Hawaiian shirt all the time. Oh. I think it, it's easy to imagine Scanlan having, you know, uh, stopped exercising regularly, his hairline's receding. But then, you know, when he goes out in public, he uses some illusion magic to trim right back up as if nothing, no time had passed at all. For sure. For sure. Because he can. Because <laughs> he can. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. One of the things that we say regularly too, to a lot of, I mean, sometimes you have the same, same advice over and over is I think the easy thing to say too is know what your players want mm. as well when it comes to this, right? Like there may be people that absolutely love Forgotten Realms and want all of that information, right? To show up like you're in water deep. They want it. They want the map out. They want all of these places. They want to know all that stuff. I think there is at the same time an element of like, knowing what your group wants and also having the conversation of like, Hey, if we don't get all of this in, is it going to be a hindrance to your game to stray from the things that you know and have experienced in the past? And also asking the question then, is this the right group to be with? If that's not the sort of game that you want to play with. Um, Cause let's be real. I mean, around anything group fit is a huge, a huge thing. Absolutely. For, for players. And so, Sometimes there are there are probably groups who are like, yeah, give it to me. I want all of the information, all of the goodies, you know, um, which is a different level of prep, which is OK if that's what if that's what you're into. Yeah, I think that would be the the one of the things that I would make sure to add about running a pre-published campaign is you may you may just have to be aware that sometimes it may have you may have to have a conversation with your players. I'm a huge proponent of session zero. We talk about it in the Teldori campaign setting reborn session zero, uh, because it is such a vital part of any D and D game of any role playing game in general. And of course, this is because of things like sensitive topics and player comfort. I think that's kind of the, the prototypical why one does a session zero is to make sure that like, Hey, what rating do we want our campaign to be? Do we have any specific topics that we want to avoid stuff like that? But talking about the flow of the game and what kind of gameplay you're looking for is a crucial component of a session zero as well i think i think anyone who poo-poos a session zero or the concept of it for being too too touchy-feely which i think is a is a, is a foolish <laughs> a foolish <laughs> thing but, but but even even if you are one of those people uh then then there's something vital to be gained from just having an honest you know adult conversation between your players about what you actually want to get from this. And if the answer is, I don't know, that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Not everyone has to fully think through their gaming experience. It can be very, very improvisational in that way. You just have to be prepared for the, the, the consequences. I recently had a moment in my home game where at the very beginning of this campaign, by now over a year ago, 
uh, I was very clear that because this is a story heavy, character focused, character relationship focused game, no characters would die unless they seriously screwed up, right? We found sort of a compromise between these heroes are the heroes and they're not gonna not gonna lose. D&D characters live fast, die young, death is death is quick and uh, unpredictable. And so I, you know, I, I I would never based based on there, I promise I would never throw them in an encounter that was too hard. And uh, we came up against the line of that in a recent game. And so uh, I had someone, one of my players come up to me and say, hey, we're still good on this, right? I don't mind if we go back and talk about it again, but we came up right against the boundary here. And I'm like, yeah, don't worry. What we said still stands, but I'm always happy to talk about it. And, you know, those mechanical concerns can also be a concern about uh, the level of story you include in your game. Or not the level of story, uh, but the level of canonicity uh, that you include in your game. One of the things, James, I'm, I'm curious about from your perspective as a, as a game designer, but also a DM who is probably, I mean, most of the stuff I do is in homebrew world or in a homebrew world. But I'm just I'm curious to see from your perspective, are there any limits that you can think of where you may have stepped away from canon too much in the the DM seat? No. <laughs> um, Perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So okay. so I, I I typically also run my games in homebrew worlds, and I, I have this one trick uh, that I like to employ when I want to run published material that prevents me from ever having that problem. And this is it. Uh, I, I ran Tyranny of Dragons this way, and I ran Princes of the Apocalypse this way. And I did it by creating a campaign setting that has immense parallels to the Forgotten Realms, but is not the Forgotten Realms. And so even though the geography is similar, even though there are major metropoli that are equivalent to Neverwinter, Waterdeep, and Baldur's Gate, these locations are not Neverwinter, Waterdeep, and Baldur's Gate. And, you know, the baggage, the immense 40-year baggage that the uh, Forgotten Realms carries with it becomes something that I can very easily pick and choose from. And whenever my characters, not characters, whenever my players have a question about, hey, is this Forgotten Realms thing true in Timor, the setting that I use as a parallel, uh, so, so should we should we take it or should we leave it? And then I would say, okay, well, let's talk about it. Why why are you interested? Why are you asking about this? Is this something that is a problem for the story you want to tell? Is it something that will enhance the story you want to tell, or is it something that you just noticed and thought was interesting and are otherwise ambivalent about? Because I can work that in if you want. And then out of game, we 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 basically talk like writers in a writer's room or 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 a director and a producer on set, and we're like, okay, well, what can we do with this how, how is this knowledge useful to us and can we discard it or do we want to keep it i think that's a really helpful just world building trick in general like i mean so many people can get you know it's really fun to draw a map right and then start to fill it in and then eventually it feels like oh crap what have i done this is super overwhelming you know <laughs> um i've but experienced that i'm sure every dm starts out with the best of intentions and then very quickly it's just like ah, i don't know what's happening but I think that's a really interesting technique to say, like, there's the ability to bring in pre-written content. So you're so you're you're doing some world building still. It, it allows you a lot of freedom, but there's also a lot of already pre-written stuff that you can just pull in 
and go, yeah, this is what, this is what sounds good. This is what I'm working with. This will be great. And then it allows you the flexibility at a different time to say, Hey, now I've got this whole region that's made and now I can fill in more stuff along the way. And I don't feel like I have to be 40 different people in a company trying to write a ton of different stuff about an entire world to have it all feel like it makes sense. And that's the thing, right? I mean, it's important for a DM at home to realize that they, they are not capable of creating a campaign setting with the level of sprawling depth that the Forgotten Realms has right out of the gate. That's not a knock against anyone's creativity. That's a knock against the amount of time and manpower that the Forgotten Realms has had to become the sprawling, beautiful, messy tapestry that it is. Uh, It's full of too much detail to enumerate, contradictions beyond imagining, and it's all cool and wonderful and and you can't make that uh in six months with just you uh when you're playing your magnum opus um and that's fine that's fine when i was doing this forgotten realms analog campaign i did it with a purpose there was something i wanted out of it and that want was very simple i wanted to run published campaigns i wanted that that was my only goal i wanted to run those published campaigns because they seemed interesting and that's what i that's what i wanted to do at the time now that I'm in a, a different phase, but right, that was largely before I was writing D and D all the time. <laughs> right, uh, right. I, I should say, it was largely before I was living in these worlds. Before I digested more Waterdeep than I knew what to do with for Dragon Heist. It was before uh, I, I got Taldori on my plate. Before I got Wildman on my plate. All of those things. And so now that I'm doing that, my priorities have changed a bit. My priorities are get me out of other people's worlds. Mm. Now I want to make my own stuff. Um, and so they're, you know, they're both things I like. It's just the the need for other people's world is satisfied in a different way now. So when when I had the Forgotten Realms analog, I had no interest in the sort of grand world building that uh, is satisfied by making your own campaign setting. And I think anyone who wants to play in someone else's sandbox should ask themselves, what do you want? out of this? What what need does playing in the Forgotten Realms or in Taldore or Eberron or, or wherever serve for you? Because once you've identified that need, whether it's I want all the lore to be written for me, or I love Vox Machina and I want their stories to be canon uh, in this setting, or I I love just the the magic items. I love the vestiges of divergence. And I can't imagine pulling them away from the story of Exandria, that sort of thing. Once you identified what you like about the setting and you know it deep in your heart, you are able to change everything else. And as long as those expectations are established in sessions here, as long as you tell your players, right, your, your fellow critical role loving players who, you know, might want something else out of the setting, as long as you let them know what you're after and give them the opportunity to let you know what they're after, then you can find the parameters in which you can change and do cool stuff uh, that differs from canon within those boundaries that you and your friends have set up for yourselves. Because I think there's something about even published content that will always leave people longing for more too, because otherwise your book would be 10,000 pages long trying to get it all in, right? And so most of the published... Oh yeah, for sure. For <laughs> Completely sure. useless for a sure. thousand page book. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, even and I'm sure this is the case for Wild Mount and Teldore books that you're you've worked on. Like 
you're giving people quite a bit to go with and also a lot of space to maneuver and be like, hey, all of these bars that are in this town are not filled out. Mm -hmm. Like, go for it, you know, create stuff on the fly, make stuff up. Not everybody has to run into, you know, Allura or, you know, Scanlan or whoever it is like that might not ever happen. But here's this entire world that is your sandbox to play in. It's truly remarkable how different a published campaign setting is from DM notes. DM notes, I think, are, are the best way of running a campaign, but they're nonsensical to the two people who did not write them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what a campaign setting or any published D&D product has to do is make it sensical and give enough framing for anyone to read it and start to form their own ideas. If you were to look at Matt's notes for the city of Nicodranas in Wildmount, for instance, and then compare it to what we wrote about it in Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, you would be shocked at how comparatively much detail is in Matt's notes, how every little bar is named, how there are so many NPCs with two or three sentence descriptions that are nowhere to be found in Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. And and I, I wrung my hands over, I can't believe we have all this information at our disposal and we're not including it. Ultimately, it was the, the right choice, in my opinion, because the, the, the point of these books is not to be exhaustive. Uh, the point of these books is to provide a foundation for you to build your own things on top of it. Uh, because once we make the sandbox too defined, it becomes a straitjacket. It's this issue of canon that we started this episode off with. Everyone's tolerance for these, these boundaries of canon is different. My, my tolerance is quite low, uh, but there are other people's tolerance is quite high. And they like that sort of almost like simulation aspect of, well, these, these things are true about the world and we and and it's important to structure our history that we're that we're creating within the boundaries of truth in the world not we're using this as a foundation to tell a story uh that uh that is free-flowing and and has a narrative that suits the dramatic needs of the story and both those play styles are are very valid but you know i'm i'm an author with an opinion <laughs> and I'm an author with a preference and I'm a DM with an opinion and a preference too. Sure. And so, and so when, when we make those things, we, we, we try to make them as broadly accessible as possible, but, uh, but there's a certain, a huge amount of subjectivity that goes into it all. Also, I wrote down a quote and I'll see how it, see how it sits with us to kind of sum up everything we've said. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's the publisher's jobs to make things consensical. So DMs and players can make them nonsensical. Nice. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I, I will go back to like the earliest of days. It is one of the conversations, and there's certainly two camps of why some people loved Greyhawk for what it was, but then also loved the Forgotten Realm for what it was. And they were different in that so much was defined about Greyhawk, and people loved that fact. And so many pieces of the Forgotten Realms were just wide open. I mean, people loved that fact. And like that, ultimately, I think it's where you need to figure out like what you and your table are okay with. Of like you said, like what's canon, what's not. Figure it out. And then start making everything nonsensical from that point on. Because <laughs> yes, I also think like my DM notes, especially in session notes, 
are barely readable to myself. So <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. I, I think also that like DM notes even made sensical to someone who is unfamiliar, even you know, it may, if made open to the general public uh, and polished and buffed out and all of that are, are tremendously boring because the the significance of the DM's notes, in my opinion anyway, in my experience anyway, are to service the immediate needs of the of the next session of the campaign, right? You have just finished your session. The players have just arrived in Ipigranas and you know what they want and you know what you want to happen. And you need to find a way of compromising those two things. How do I give the players what they want? How do I give myself what I want? What NPCs and locations and magic items and monsters, et cetera, do I need to make that happen? And then you go and make it. And if you're too bound to the, the rote history of the world, then, then suddenly you're struggling to apply the boundaries of that history to the needs of your campaign. And suddenly the needs of your campaign are suffering in service of the road history of the world, or almost worse, the road history of the world is suffering to uh, give to allow you to service the needs of your campaign. So something has to give. And so making the world as open as possible means that uh, that, that tension evaporates and you are free to put the needs of your campaign first and understand the history uh, will arise from your campaign as it happens. Yeah, one of my favorite questions I ask it every time at the end of the sessions that we're at is, and this could help with published material, it could help with just homebrew stuff that you make up on the spot, is like at the end of a session, there's literally a thousand different ways things could go, right? Mm -hmm. The question that I always ask at the end is, so where do you think you all want to go or what what's going to be your next step? So if I can even just have that that one, that one thing that they're going to go and do next, that'll help me be creative to no end after that. I'm like, at least I have that starting direction that I can go in mm -hmm. for my next DM notes. Cause otherwise I'm like, I'm the type of personality that would be like, I'm planning out 80 different things. Cause I have no idea where they're going and that's just not helpful for me, but you know, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, any other things we want to add about world building and existing settings that we have not said at this point, otherwise we can move on to the homework. If we have anything for people. I, I, I want to say this real quick, and it's, it's kind of just like the opening paragraph to a huge topic that we could do our own full episode on, honestly. Uh, and it's about creating new canon within an existing canon. It's something that, that I faced recently in the renewed Teldoray campaign setting, because the world has changed, 20 years have passed. We can't just have the same old heroes and villains and, and threats new ones need to arise and create the opportunity for new stories. And as a dungeon master, it's your responsibility to do so too. If, if you're playing in the Forgotten Realms and you're not playing a published campaign, right? Because such people exist, such people play uh, in the Forgotten Realms that they don't run the big hardback campaign settings. And I think that's a very cool intersection of brand new creativity and adherence to old history what you can create a new threat that is not Tiamat or Larlock the Lich or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you reconcile that within the world? How do you make the history of the world rise up to support your new creation and not feel like it just sort of appeared out of thin air? Man, 
that's it's such a juicy question. I wish we had time to answer it, but I think that's something for DMs to have in their mind and sort of chew on as they're planning their campaigns. Or for us to do in a future podcast episode. Hey, yeah. hey. See, I like setting up my own sequel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. No, that'll be that'll be fun. I'm excited about that. That got me spinning in so many different areas because you could do that even in your own homebrew worlds too, of mm-hmm. like, hey, old adventurers that your players played. Yep. You could possibly run across them again. Yep. And is there the freedom to allow the DM to make canon up? about those players or is that a conversation you should have with your players before you just make random stuff up about their former characters so yes, anyways we'll we'll yeah we could go on for a while about that we'll save that for a, me for a, email. We'll talk for a different it. sequel <laughs> <laughs> um neil james myself are, are there any resources movies podcasts books etc uh that could help our listeners kind of dive deeper into this world building in existing worlds uh, sort of topic. I think one of the the things I always think about is to just kind of dig around in the DMs Guild because, like, that's kind of the point of the DMs Guild is being having that IP available to you and building off of those things. And there's certainly some that, like, some of that cream that has risen to the top and those things that are supplementals to very specifically to um, certain adventures that have come out. So, like, that is by far and away my like number one suggestion is to go check those things out yeah that was that was mine as well i think that's a great starting point there's a lot of stuff that's free out there there's a lot of stuff that's paid even if it's free tip people for it give them a little bit little bit of cash uh because like we were joking about beforehand we didn't get into this for the love of money right (laughs) but there's so much stuff out there on the dms guild that you can you can pull from ends of water deep to i mean just so many so much stuff out there that can just help flood your brain with like how can i do this how can i do this well because it can seem overwhelming at times so that would be my advice as well neil go go check out the dms guild or a a lot of indie publishers do this too where they they create stuff uh, to help with canon and world building in existing worlds already so if you if you want to see how people can create new canon and how uh, it can work or fail uh look at anything star wars published after 1981 and come to your own conclusions read the old expand universe books watch the prequels watch the sequels and determine for yourself don't listen to youtube videos about it <laughs> determine for yourself what you like or dislike about everything that came after return of the jedi and and see how you can apply that to your own canon the x-wing series is great <laughs> yeah or it's not depends on what youtube well, it's is. not or yeah yeah determine for yourself what is it what is it that you love or hate about it and and don't go ranting about it online but yeah. use it to make your uh to make your worlds better we all know how ranting online works in this day and age <laughs> speaking of ranting online one thing to look at in terms of continuation and canon um is certainly uh the new he-man series on netflix Mm. um and really a lot of the remakes and and the approaches are certainly things because you look at 30 years later what did someone determine was important enough to keep and what did they not keep Mm. because that's really the question that at the end of all of this i realized that's what you're asking Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, James, thanks for thanks for being on. Thanks for creating a sequel that we'll have to have you back on for uh, again. 
And uh, seriously, best of luck with all the all the work that you're doing, both things that you can talk about and can't talk about. Been a fan of your work for a while, uh, whether it's been critical role stuff, D&D stuff, D&D Beyond stuff. Uh, it's been it's been fun watching uh, your career from a distance uh, kind of especially take off in the past couple of years. It's been cool. Thank you. It's It's been great being on the show. Great talking with you. Talking with you both. We just want to thank James again for coming on, spending some time with us, and definitely we're going to need to bring him back on to discuss adding canon back into your own homebrew world and how to go about it. But if you like this episode or any of the others, first and foremost, go tell somebody. Tell them this is the place to come get some at least solid information because that's what I get every time from our guests. And of course, if you also liked it enough, and wanted to tell us about how you're building upon the foundations of pre-existing worlds, head over to dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com and send us an email. You'd probably head to your own email and then put that in there, but, but you get it. You get it. And of course, head to your podcatcher of choice or Apple Review, <laughs> Apple Podcasts. I realize that implies it's not your podcatcher of choice and leave us a five-star review if you see fit. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block or like us on Facebook where you can keep track of us there as well. As always, the Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of Block Party Podcast Network where you can check out other shows like Detentions and Dragons, who is off their summer break, Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters, which I'm almost caught up with my own children, Diamnastics, where we'll have some great guests and content, and more. As always, though, thank you for listening to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of everyone else at the table. I'm DM Neil. Good night, good luck, and keep on Dungeon Mastering. Goodbye.